what we're considering in the book of Revelation. Book of Revelation, please, and we're still around chapter 14. And I want over these next three or four weeks, I think it is four weeks, to try and pull these pictures together. In Revelation 13, 14, 15, and to get the lessons from them. And you see, that's the way you've got to approach Revelation, please. We're, when we open the book of Revelation, we've opened a picture book, all right? And we're looking at the pictures, the visions that have been put into words. And as you read the words, you can conjure up, you can see clearly the picture in your mind. And when you get the picture in your mind, you'll get the lesson of the vision. You get the lesson of the vision and you'll get the blessing of God. All right, so it's chapter 13 and it's chapter 14 and we're bringing it together particularly over these next few works, few weeks. I mean, chapter 13, it was a, just a picture of evil at work. My word, we're seeing something of that today. We've just heard, haven't we? Evil at work. Evil as evil as evil could be. It's the principalities and the powers and it's the rulers of the darkness of this world at work. It's spiritual wickedness from those high places. It's evil that's blatant. It's blasphemous. It's destructive. It's determined. It's relentless. It's organized and it's deceptive. I think I've run out of descriptions after that, but if you can think of anything else to add to that list of evil, we'll put it in, because it's all true. That's what you see there in chapter 13. Then you go to chapter 14, and in verse 1, it just opens with that glorious picture, the contrast. You see evil at work in chapter 13 in the world, and Satan doing his worst. And then in chapter 14, you see the people of God, the redeemed of the Lord, and they're standing with the Lamb upon Mount Sion. That's a marvellous picture of brightness against the awful colour of the darkness. And that's what we've heard this morning, haven't we? Satan at work so determinedly in a universal fashion, and yet a soul here gets blessed, he gets saved. A soul over there, they get saved. And despite what Satan does, the Lord Jesus has said, I will build my church, and the very gates of hell will not prevail against my church building program. So we take courage this morning and we look up and we look on and we look to that blessed day when we too will stand there surrounding the Lamb of God who has borne away the sin of the world and we'll be with him and we'll be able to worship him and we'll be able to praise him as we really should. That's what you've got in Revelation 14 and those opening five verses. Mount Sion they're standing. The picture's beautiful. The lambs in the forefront, always the lamb, always Christ. Surrounding him, the picture of his redeemed. Mount Zion, the place that was once a fortress for many centuries in the protection of the people of God. Mount Zion, which was the city, was David's city. It was the city of the king. And Mount Zion, which was the place where Solomon built his temple. So you've got this beautiful combination. It's the place of God's presence, it's the place of God's reign and it's the place of God's protection and that's where the redeemed are. Divinely protected, blessed under the reign of Christ for he has set his king upon his holy hill of Zion and at the same time enjoying and knowing the presence of the Lord. 
So you read these verses, verses 1 through to 5, and you're sort of moved as you read it. The Lamb, the multitude of the redeemed. And then the voice of God comes across, as it were, the picture screen. And it's the voice, and it sounds like the voice of thunder and its power. The voice of many waters in its strength, in its refreshment, in its giving of life and revival. And as you're listening to the voice of God, you stand in awe. And then from the background there comes the instrument of heaven, the harpists harping with their harps, and the sweet softening melody of the divine music is enrapturing your soul, and then you hear something. The choir starts. 144,000 voices singing a song which no man can sing save those who are redeemed. And you stand, as it were, entranced upon Mount Zion and you say, beautiful for situation is Mount Zion. It's the joy of the whole earth. And you think how wonderful it will be to be there. And then as I was thinking that, that verse from Hebrews 13 came to my mind, Hebrews 12, Ye are come to Mount Zion, that's now, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, the innumerable company of angels, the general assembly or the festive gathering, the church of the firstborn which are written in heaven, and to God judge of all and the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant and the blood of sprinkling, speaking better things than that of angels. Isn't that lovely? I mean, you just read that and you think, well, that's what we've got now in faith, anticipating, and it's ours. What will it be to be there? And you find yourself joining in the singing of those 144,000. And you yourself sing the song of redemption because you and I have learnt it and we learnt it that day we came to the cross. And we learnt it on the day when we found that the Lord Jesus Christ was our own saviour and he came to redeem us. And we say together, what a blessing is ours. What a blessing. An absolute blessing. Now, as you read on through chapter 6, I'm sorry, from verse 6 of chapter 14, just briefly, you know, I want to introduce you to this because this is where we're going to get eventually in these next two or three weeks. You come across... Uh, the picture changes. You're on Mount Zion, you're singing, you're following the Lamb, you're fixated upon Him, you're ready to worship Him and to, to do or give Him everything you've got, as it were. And then you just see the, the picture changing and there comes an angel and there comes another angel and there comes an angel, three angels. By the time you've gone through those three angels, you're left with a dark, dark picture. You're left with a, a fearful painting. Not because Satan is at work doing evil, but because the storm clouds of the wrath of God are gathering thick and thundering loud and moving across the skies. And the storm of God's judgment is it's about to burst. They're dark. There's flashes of lightning. You can get it in your mind, can't you? 
The gleams of sunlight are disappearing and they're gone. And you're left with the awful reality of the winepress of the wrath of Almighty God poured out without any dilution, full strength upon the system of sin and in the third angel on the sinner unsaved. It's a dreadful picture. But, but, there's one bright gleam. There's just one bright gleam. And that's the first angel. He's there, as it were, with that background that's so foreboding, so final, so absolute. There he is, and he's holding up the placard. He said, the placard, and it says, the everlasting gospel. Isn't that wonderful? Right in the presence of impending doom and judgment, God sends out still the message of mercy. See mercy, mercy from on high, descend to rebels doomed to die. There it is, right until the end, the opportunity is given for mankind to repent and to trust Christ and to know redemption and be redeemed unto God and to the Lamb out of this present world. It's going to be a beautiful study. Follow me closely in these next few times. Because it's particularly I want to go back and just take one last look at the redeemed as they're standing there around the Lamb. Because there's lessons here, very practical, and I feel impelled to actually take them. You start in verse 4 of chapter 14. Previous verses have given us Mount Zion. They have given us the, 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 those that are sealed. They are singing. We have heard the music of heaven. We have heard the voice of God. And then it says about these 144,000 which were redeemed from the earth. And it says this about them. These, verse 4, these are they which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. These were redeemed from among men, being the firstfruits unto God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no guile, no deceit. They are without fault before the throne of God. And what you've got clearly given to us here is a description of the kind of people these redeemed are. And actually, it's telling us something about their character, it's telling us something about their affections, and it's telling us something about their behavior. Now, this is important. There's great practical lessons here. See, these people have actually lived through, as it were, as it were, the awful days of chapter 13. It's like, you know, the truth is they've lived in that kind of world, and yet they've come through, and what does it say? They are morally pure. Morally pure. Now, we're not dealing with the fact of what Christ has done for them and washing them from their sins in the blood of the Lamb. We're actually dealing with the character of people and the way in which they have behaved and how they have lived in that present evil world. And you can imagine these early Christians, as they would have read this, they, it would have been such a message to them because they were growing up and living in a well, one of the vilest and filthiest and most immoral of ages. Romans chapter 1 proves that to you very plainly, doesn't it? It's, it's mind-blowing, Romans chapter 1, the state of the world. And once upon a time, you and I couldn't have imagined that. But see, this is the world in which we're living today. That is exactly where we're heading. 
a, wom- a, a world of no morality, of amorality, and of immorality, of blasphemy, and of hatred against all that it is, is of God and all that is represented in his people. So you read it and it has its relevance. And what you find is that in the midst of that society, there are those who are morally pure. You see, it's a hallmark of a true believer, somebody who's truly redeemed is that they don't want to go on sinning, nor do they actually continue on continuing to sin. John Rice said in his epistle, he that is begotten of God, he says, he keeps himself and God keeps him as well. He does not continue to sin. And it's exactly the same for us today. Fellow Christian, we live in a world where morality, immorality is celebrated, advocated, and thoroughly flaunted, right? For a believer to live in today's world as morally pure is the norm for the Christian. It's not the exception. I wouldn't think I would have to say that today, but I do have to say that today. Because the problem is we get used to the environment in which we live and the standards get dropped so low that before long the whole thinking and behavior has infiltrated itself into us, whereby our purity is under serious threat. The scripture is full of warning after warning. It says, keep thyself pure. It says, flee fornication. It says, flee youthful lust. It says, touch not the unclean thing. And it's a great rule in life. If it's dirty, you don't touch it, no matter what. If it's literature or entertainment or conversation or humor or thinking, if it's dirty, we do not touch it. And we we have to warn ourselves again, don't lose sight of the exceeding sinfulness of sin. Don't let yourself get used to what you see and not feel indignant. Don't let yourself... Get to a state where you're not even embarrassed by the evil that's around you. Because you see, Jeremiah mentioned that, didn't he? He says, my people cannot blush, neither can they be ashamed. Morally pure, a characteristic of the redeemed. You know, even Lot, and he had certainly had some doubtful morals in so many ways, but even him, it says, he vexed his soul with the filthy conversation of the wicked. It was a problem to him, down there in Sodom. And that's where we are. We're in that kind of environment. Sin is still sin. Not only that, but these individuals here, they have clear standards. There's no guile found in their mouths. In other words, they're not deceitful. That's what it means. Now, you compare that to what we had of the beast, the two beasts in chapter 13, and realizing that deception is the status quo when it comes to the operation of evil. Deception is the status quo. You know, the representation of truth of, as an, un, sorry, the, the twisting of what's said or done or intended so that it looks like truth or looks like good, so cleverly dressed up and advertised that people actually believe it to be good and they then go and act upon it. Now, these people have nothing to do with that kind of thing whatsoever. They are people who are upright. They are people with standards. They are people who don't have anything to do with deception. 
Please let me say it again. The devil himself, by one masterstroke of deception, brought the whole human race under his control and power at the fall. Now, he hasn't given up and he's still doing it. And all around us now, who really says yes and no? Listen to interviews on the news. Does anybody ever answer a question with a direct yes or a direct no? And the Lord says, let your yea be yea and let your nay be nay, because anything more than that, he says, will be of evil. You know, there will be an avoidance. There will be a prevarication. There will be something whereby you want to represent it as it is. We're not... The believer is someone who's honest, he's upright, he's forthright, he's clear, he says yes, he says no. His word is truth and his word is his bond. And that's what you've got here. Morally pure, ethical standards, no deceit in their mouth, and then finally it says that they are blameless. Now, in this context here, we're not just talking, not really talking about the fact that they're washed in the blood of the Lamb and before God and his justice... They have been justified by the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. What we're talking about is people who live morally pure and upright lives and you cannot point a finger at them for wrong behavior. It should not be normal, right? If I'm a Christian businessman, for instance, that the people down the road are saying, well, watch him, he's a bit shady, you know? He'll pull a fast one on you if he can. Or if I'm at work with somebody and they, they say, well, just careful because he doesn't always tell the truth. There's a blamelessness. That is, you have a good testimony from those who are without. Morally upright? Yes. Morally pure? Yes. With absolute standards, you stand in stark contrast to the society roundabout. And as we've just mentioned this morning, it's all a question of being salt and it's all a question of being light. Fellow Christian, we are not like the world. If you're truly redeemed, the transformation comes in your character as well as in your standing before God. And it seems ridiculous, but in today's world, we have to remind ourselves of what purity is. Get a fresh sense of the holiness of God, the exceeding sinfulness of sin, and the cost to our Lord Jesus Christ. When he bore the judgment for sin, and the wrath of God against sin, then maybe we will realize the seriousness of sin and cease, as it were, practicing it, yes, but raising our standards higher than the mud puddle of the world in which we live. Let me read it again. These are they which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goes. These were redeemed from among men, being the firstfruits unto God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no guile. Now just look at that again. We've gone through just the practical side of it, but there's something more going on here in the hearts of these redeemed and their behavior. You see, the thing that's making the difference to them is really and truly the Lamb. The Lamb. You see, in verse 1, they're surrounding him. And you go down to verse 4, and they're, they're following him. Follow the lamb with us wherever he goes. And you go to the end of verse 4, and they've been actually the first fruits to the lamb. The first fruits is that which belongs to God. So they surround him, and they follow him, and they belong to him. And their whole attention seems to be, in this picture, completely focused on him. It's as though 
if you could just get the picture in your mind, there's the lamb and there's this tremendous multitude of people and they're all looking in one direction. They're all looking at the lamb. See, their eyes look to him, their feet follow him, their lips praise him and their lives honour him. Get it? Now, the simple truth is they love him. That's the truth. Do you know what? That's the clear, simple, defining truth and fact about a true Christian. A Christian is someone who loves the Lord. Imperfectly we do it. Yes. And like the tide of the sea, our love, it ebbs and flows. But deep down in the underneath it all, there's something in your soul that responds. Like the psalmist of old, you say, I love the Lord because... And in this picture, their love and affection and attention and allegiance is directed to the Lamb, you see. It's to the Lamb. What does that mean? Well, it means the Son of God who loved me and he gave himself for me, you see. And that's really where it all begins in the understanding of the fact that, O Lamb of God, my sacrifice, I must remember thee. That's where it comes from the one who died, who loved us unto death. Now, understand this also. It's only the believer that can really love the Lord. Do you realize that? It is. The unbeliever doesn't love the Lord. You know that. And they can't understand why it is that you do. Why he means so much to you. Why his word means so much to you. Why his leading means so much to you. Why everything you've got, you want to give it to him. Why? It's because you love him, you see. And... The love that the Christian has is a begotten love. You know, it's something that's born within them. And it's born within them by the act and the power of God. You see, we love him. How? Why? Because he first loved us. He showed us. He demonstrated it. He poured himself out in order that you and I might be redeemed. And we love him in return because he first loved us. And you see, not only that, but when we were saved, when we were born again, that new life which came into us, that Holy Spirit which came to indwell us, brought with its presence, his presence, the means whereby we were now able to love in return. It is a characteristic of the new nature. The Holy Spirit has been shed abroad in our hearts and the Holy Spirit has shed abroad the love of God in our hearts. And the Lord Jesus, before he left this earth, before he left this scene, he said those tremendous words. Father, he said, the love wherewith you have loved me. He said, I want that love to be in them. That's incredible. Last week, Nick brought us to have a think about the love that was in the Godhead, the love between the Father and the Son, the fact that God is love. That's where all love originated. Without God, no love. It was there in the Godhead, in the triune Godhead. Can you really grasp the love that the Father had for the Son and the love that the Son had for the Father, whereby he completely did his Father's will to the point of offering himself without spot to God? That 
kind of love has been at the point of our new birth and regeneration and salvation taken and been put into the heart, the new nature of the believer. And that's why we love him. It's been begotten within us. It originated within the Godhead. It came from there through the presence of the Holy Spirit into my new nature. And I find that I'm caught up in a whole new circle of affection that is not human but divine, which came out from God, which originated within the Godhead and emanated forth from him and embraced me and included me and regenerated me and came and brought to me something I never had before. And now I want to stand on Mount Zion and join the 144,000 and I want to follow the Lamb. I want to follow the Lamb, whithersoever he goes. I want my life to glorify him. I want my lips to praise him. I want my eyes to look upon him. And I want my feet to follow him. And I'm going from here on to keep myself pure for him. Now that's the meaning of They are virgins. What is a virgin? Someone who's kept themselves pure. We teach our children, keep yourself pure. Husband, man, keep yourself pure as a virgin for your wife, the one to whom you are dedicated, committed to love. Girl, keep yourself pure from all other loves and indecencies for the husband that God will bring to you So you see, virgin affection. Now that's exactly what's in mind here. These people understand that they are keeping their love, which they have got within them, to be solely given to the Lamb who died for them at Calvary. You see, when you say to these people, oh, excuse me, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world, they say, well, of course I understand that. That's not a bother. I mean, that love that I have doesn't belong anywhere else but for the Lord. And that's the beautiful thing. It belongs entirely for the Lord. You see, it's not a divided love. <laughs> I mean, if a man loves the world, the Lord says, then the love of the Father is not in him. In other words, that love that comes from God is not in the person who can actually put the world, whatever that may mean, first before the true husband and spouse. That is the Lord Jesus Christ, the Redeemer. That's the teaching that's here. And of course the believer is someone who has no trouble in keeping his commandments because, well, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And you know yourself, you want to please him. You know yourself with all your imperfections, you do want to follow him. You do want to find out what he says about everything. Because when when you find out what he says about everything, every aspect of your life, every way in which you should behave, that's the very thing you choose to do. Why do you choose to do it? Because you love him. And you know he loves you. And his commandments, they're not arduous, as the Bible says, to the believer. They're not, oh, you know, taking away my liberty. No, they're bringing me into blessing. Because I tell you, there's not one commandment from the Lord. There's not one point about his will for you, for humanity generally, for his people generally, or for you personally. There's not one thing that's not for your good. Not one thing that won't enrich you and bring you absolute blessing. 
What did it say about these people earlier on? These are they which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Taking it even just a little bit further, there's an incredible verse in uh, 2 Corinthians. And it says this here. They, they, they would have understood this if you read it up there on Mount Zion. They'd have understood it. It says, Paul says, I'm jealous over you with a jealousy which is of God or a godly jealousy. I have espoused you to one husband. I betrothed you to one man in that bond that can never be broken and is never meant to be broken. Then I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. I fear, lest by any means, as the serpent deceived Eve through his subtlety or his craft, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. May the Lord keep us all as simple Christians who love the Lord. Now, you mightn't have all the answers to every question. You mightn't understand the world in which you live or be able to argue with the gainsayer. But you know one thing, I love the Lord and I'm not shifting from it. My eyes are going to look to him. My ears are open for him. My feet will always follow him. My lips will always praise him. And my life is entirely to be dedicated to the love which I have for him and for his service. That's what you've got here. Virgin affection for the Redeemer. A single eye, a pure love, a simplicity in the sense that it is not corrupted with all sorts of other kinds of influences or intrigue. You remember the story of uh, Ludwig, Count Ludwig von Zinzendorf? The man that looked after all those Moravian brethren and was responsible for that tremendous missionary work of the Moravians sent to the world in that particular era. He was a young man of nobility, a young man of great learning. And he actually was of age and he was to go to serve in the court of the king as one of the king's advisors in Dresden. And he was on his way there. He was a very qualified man. He was a very godly man. And I think it was Wittenberg where he actually paused in his journey. Now this is the man that wrote him after him after him. Jesus, thy blood and righteousness. My beauty is my glorious dress. That's, that's Zinzendorf's wordings. That's the kind of man that he was. But at this stage he was a young man, in the very early 20s. And he stopped off at this city and he went into the art gallery and it was there that he was confronted with the painting of Steiner's crucifixion that tremendous representation of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it said, the historians say that he just stood in front of it as a man transfixed. And an hour later, he was still standing there just staring at it. Picture of a crucified Christ. And the hour later, he was still doing it. And until it was right on to the evening and closing hour, and the attendant came to him and just had to give him a little nudge, you know, it was time to move on, sir. And he moved on, and it is said that as he went out into the street, he uttered these words, for me, it's Jesus, and Jesus only. Now have you got it? Chaste virgin for Christ. Affections 
that are meant only for him. And when you read on down through Corinthians, he says, I'm really worried that somebody else will come and preach to you another gospel. It's not really a gospel, but it's a gospel that will not tell you all about the Lamb of God who bears away the sin of the world. It's a gospel that really won't tell you that your greatest need is to wash your robes and to have them white in the blood of the Lamb. It's a gospel that really and truly will sort of start to make you not feel not so bad about yourself. As a matter of fact, you might require to do some good works in order to earn salvation, or at least there'll be something in it that will make you feel good. Ah, these people say, no, 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 I'm not going to depart from the simplicity which is in Christ. I am not going to be deceived by a message except that message exalts the Lamb and makes me nothing and it makes him everything. And at the end of the day, if I have served him all my life in my imperfect way, if I've known him as my saviour for 50, 60 or 70 years, at the end of the day, I'll stand there and I'll say, Lord, I'm only a sinner, and I've been saved by grace. That's the gospel. That's the truth of salvation. It's not a gospel that tells me how special I am. It doesn't tell me how valuable I am. What it tells me is, it's a gospel that says how glorious he is. He is. Now, that's the point. Their eyes are on the Lamb. Their hearts are towards the Lamb. They are the first fruits to God and to the Lamb. You see, they belong to Him. When you get this truth into your heart, when you stand on Mount Zion and absorb the picture, you get it? And look at the detail. What you'll find is that you'll start to, you'll start to realize what it means to be redeemed. It means you've been purchased and it means that you are owned. That's what it means. See, we've been redeemed not with silver or gold, but with the precious blood as of a lamb without spot and without blemish. Yes, we've been purchased, it says in Acts, this is an amazing verse, I think it's chapter 20, it says, the church which he's purchased with the blood of his own. You say, what well, it says, with his own blood. Originally, it's the blood of his own. Is it a picture of God purchasing the sinner with the blood of his own son offered in sacrifice? Is it Christ himself offering his own blood in order to purchase and redeem me? Does it matter? No, because both things are blessedly true. We are not our own. We've been brought with a price. And when you realize that, to whom you belong, and the price that was paid, then that love that is pure, you see, it's not adulterated and mixed with other loves. It's, it's single-eyed, it's unswerving, it's unwavering, and it's so strong that it causes you to follow the Lamb whithersoever he goes. That is true discipleship. It's you're looking to the Lord and he leads you constantly. It's a daily practical thing. It's the life of faith. It's the life of prayer. You are following the Lamb. He sets the lead. No, I don't plan my life and decide what I'll do to him and say, Lord, come with me now and bless me so that this works because I'm going to do. No, it's not like that. There's a simplicity about it. You're looking. You're listening. You're following. You just want to be used by him for his glory. And when you start to follow the lamb with us, however he goes, what happens is that you're living a life of true consecration, a life of true commitment, and it's a life of service. 
We are not our own. We've been brought with a price. Glorify therefore God in your bodies and in your spirit, which are God. See the totality of that. In your bodies and in your spirit, which are God's. You can't help thinking, can you, of... uh, Well, I was thinking as I read it of some hymns. You remember Frances Ridley Havergal, don't you? Do you remember that beautiful hymn she wrote of consecration? I tell you, Barbara and I sang this on our wedding day. Here we are all these years later and you look back and you think, how imperfectly, how imperfectly have I kept those words. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my moments and my days. Let them flow in ceaseless praise. Each verse goes on, take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love. Take my voice and let me sing always only for my King. Take my silver and my gold. Not a mite would I withhold. Take my intellect and use every power as thou shalt choose. Take my will and make it thine. It shall be no longer mine. Take my heart. See, this is the virgin. This is the pure affection. It is thine own. It shall be thy royal throne. Take my love. My Lord, I pour at thy feet its treasured store. Take myself and I will be ever, only, all for thee. So just look back a minute, will you? See those redeemed? Listen to them sing. Look at their eyes. Listen to their lips. Look at their feet. And look how they follow. For the Lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. The Lord bless us this morning and help us to renew our vows of allegiance and love for the Lord himself. Father, we confess our imperfection. We pray that thy holy word this morning might speak a word of encouragement, even correction. We may say that that flame of love, as it were, might awaken afresh within us with renewed vigor. And may we know the blessing of my almighty God and the love of the Redeemer and the grace that comes from on high with the blessedness of divine salvation. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be our portion and our blessing in the week that lies ahead or until our Lord shall come. Amen. Amen.